The Adventure of the Six Napoleons by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was no very unusual thing for Mr. Lestrade, of Scotland Yard, to look in upon us of an evening, and his visits were welcome to Sherlock Holmes, for they enabled him to keep in touch with all that was going on at the police headquarters. In return for the news which Lestrade would bring, Holmes was always ready to listen with attention to the details of any case upon which the detective was engaged, and was able occasionally, without any active interference, to give some hint or suggestion drawn from his own vast knowledge and experience. On this particular evening Lestrade had spoken of the weather and the newspapers. Then he had fallen silent, puffing thoughtfully at his cigar. Holmes looked keenly at him. "'Anything remarkable on hand?' he asked. "'Oh, no, Mr. Holmes, nothing very particular.' "'Then tell me about it.' Lestrade laughed. "'Well, Mr. Holmes, there is no use denying that there is something on my mind. And yet it is such an absurd business that I hesitated to bother you about it. On the other hand, although it is trivial, it is undoubtedly queer, and I know that you have a taste for all that is out of the common.' but in my opinion it comes more in Dr. Watson's line than ours. Disease, said I. Madness, anyhow, and a queer madness, too. You wouldn't think there was anyone living at this time of day who had such a hatred of Napoleon I that he would break any image of him that he could see. Holmes sank back in his chair. That's no business of mine, said he. Exactly. That's what I said. But then, when the man commits burglary in order to break images which are not his own, that brings it away from the doctor and on to the policeman. Holmes sat up again. Burglary? This is more interesting. Let me hear the details. Lestrade took out his official notebook and refreshed his memory from its pages. The first case reported was four days ago, said he. It was at the shop of Morse Hudson, who has a place for the sale of pictures and statues in the Kennington Road. The assistant had left the front shop for an instant, when he heard a crash. And hurrying in, he found a plaster bust of Napoleon, which stood with several other works of art upon the counter, lying shivered into fragments. He rushed out into the road, but although several passers-by declared that they had noticed a man run out of the shop, he could neither see anyone, nor could he find any means of identifying the rascal. It seemed to be one of those senseless acts of hooliganism which occur from time to time, and it was reported to the constable on the beat as such. The plaster cast was not worth more than a few shillings, and the whole affair appeared to be too childish for any particular investigation. The second case, however, was more serious, and also more singular. It occurred only last night. In Kennington Road, and within a few hundred yards of Morse Hudson's shop, there lives a well-known medical practitioner named Dr. Barnicot, who has one of the largest practices upon the south side of the Thames. His residence and principal consulting room is at Kennington Road, but he has a branch surgery and dispensary at Lower Brixton Road, two miles away. This Dr. Barnicot is an enthusiastic admirer of Napoleon, and his house is full of books, pictures, and relics of the French emperor. Some little time ago he purchased from Morse Hudson two duplicate plaster casts of the famous head of Napoleon by the French sculptor Devine. One of these he placed in his hall in the house at Kennington Road, and the other on the mantelpiece of the surgery at Lower Brixton. 
Well, when Dr. Barnicot came down this morning, he was astonished to find that his house had been burgled during the night, but that nothing had been taken save the plaster head from the hall. It had been carried out, and had been dashed savagely against the garden wall, under which its splintered fragments were discovered. Holmes rubbed his hands. "'This is certainly very novel,' said he. "'I thought it would please you, but I have not got to the end yet.' Dr. Barnicot was due at his surgery at twelve o'clock, and you can imagine his amazement when, on arriving there, he found that the window had been opened in the night, and that the broken pieces of his second bust were strewn all over the room. It had been smashed to atoms where it stood. In neither case were there any signs which could give us a clue as to the criminal or lunatic who had done the mischief. Now, Mr. Holmes, you have got the facts. They are singular, not to say grotesque said Holmes. May I ask whether the two busts smashed in Dr. Barnicot's rooms were the exact duplicates of the one which was destroyed in Morse Hudson's shop? They were taken from the same mold. Such a fact must tell against the theory that the man who breaks them is influenced by any general hatred of Napoleon. Considering how many hundreds of statues of the great emperor must exist in London, it is too much to suppose such a coincidence as that a promiscuous iconoclast should chance to begin upon three specimens of the same bust. "'Well, I thought as you do,' said Lestrade. "'On the other hand, this Morse Hudson is the purveyor of busts in that part of London, and these three were the only ones which had been in his shop for years.' So although, as you say, there are many hundreds of statues in London, it is very probable that these three were the only ones in that district. Therefore a local fanatic would begin with them. What do you think, Dr. Watson? There are no limits to the possibilities of monomania, I answered. There is the condition which the modern French psychologists have called the idée fixe, which may be trifling in character, and accompanied by complete sanity in every other way. A man who had read deeply about Napoleon, or who had possibly received some hereditary family injury through the Great War, might conceivably form such an idée fixe, and under its influence be capable of any fantastic outrage. "'That won't do, my dear Watson,' said Holmes, shaking his head. "'For no amount of idée fixe would enable your interesting monomaniac to find out where these busts were situated.' "'Well, how do you explain it?' I don't attempt to do so. I would only observe that there is a certain method in the gentleman's eccentric proceedings. For example, in Dr. Barnicot's hall, where a sound might arouse the family, the bust was taken outside before being broken, whereas in the surgery, where there was less danger of an alarm, it was smashed where it stood. The affair seems absurdly trifling, and yet I dare call nothing trivial when I reflect that some of my most classic cases have had the least promising commencement. You will remember, Watson, how the dreadful business of the Abernethy family was first brought to my notice by the depth which the parsley had sunk into the butter upon a hot day. I can't afford, therefore, to smile at your three broken busts, Lestrade, and I shall be very much obliged to you if you will let me hear of any fresh development of so singular a chain of events. The development for which my friend had asked came in a quicker and an infinitely more tragic form than he could have imagined. I was still dressing in my bedroom next morning, when there was a tap at the door, and Holmes entered, a telegram in his hand. He read it aloud. Come instantly, 131 Pitt Street, Kensington, Lestrade. What is it, then? I asked. 
Don't know. Maybe anything. But I suspect it is the sequel of the story of the statues. In that case, our friend the image-breaker has begun operations in another quarter of London. There's coffee on the table, Watson, and I have a cab at the door. In half an hour we had reached Pitt Street, a quiet little backwater just beside one of the briskest currents of London life. Number 131 was one of a row, all flat-chested, respectable, and most unromantic dwellings. As we drove up, we found the railings in front of the house lined by a curious crowd. Holmes whistled. By George, it's attempted murder at the least. Nothing less will hold the London message boy. There's a deed of violence indicated in that fellow's round shoulders and outstretched neck. What's this, Watson? The top steps swill down, and the other ones dry. Footsteps enough, anyhow. Well, well, there's Lestrade at the front window, and we shall soon know all about it. The official received us with a very grave face, and showed us into a sitting-room, where an exceedingly unkempt and agitated elderly man, clad in a flannel dressing-gown, was pacing up and down. He was introduced to us as the owner of the house, Mr. Horace Harker of the Central Press Syndicate. "'It's the Napoleon bust business again,' said Lestrade. "'You seemed interested last night, Mr. Holmes, so I thought perhaps you would be glad to be present now that the affair has taken a very much graver turn.' "'What has it turned to, then?' "'To murder. "'Mr. Harker, will you tell these gentlemen exactly what has occurred?' "'The man in the dressing-gown turned upon us with a most melancholy face. "'It's an extraordinary thing,' said he, "'that all my life I have been collecting other people's news, "'and now that a real piece of news has come my own way, "'I am so confused and bothered that I can't put two words together.' If I had come in here as a journalist, I should have interviewed myself, and had two columns in every evening paper. As it is, I am giving away valuable copy by telling my story over and over to a string of different people, and I can make no use of it myself. However, I've heard your name, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and if you'll only explain this queer business, I shall be paid for my trouble in telling you the story. Holmes sat down and listened. It all seems to center round that bust of Napoleon, which I bought for this very room about four months ago. I picked it up cheap from Harding Brothers, two doors from the High Street Station. A great deal of my journalistic work is done at night, and I often write until the early morning. So it was today. I was sitting in my den, which is at the back of the top of the house, about three o'clock, when I was convinced that I heard some sounds downstairs. I listened, but they were not repeated and I concluded that they came from outside. Then suddenly, about five minutes later, there came a most horrible yell, the most dreadful sound, Mr. Holmes, that ever I heard. It will ring in my ears as long as I live. I sat frozen with horror for a minute or two. Then I seized the poker and went downstairs. When I entered this room I found the window wide open, and I at once observed that the bust was gone from the mantelpiece. Why any burglar should take such a thing passes my understanding, for it was only a plaster cast, and of no real value whatever. You can see for yourself that any one going out through that open window could reach the front doorstep by taking a long stride. This was clearly what the burglar had done, so I went round and opened the door. Stepping out into the dark, I nearly fell over a dead man who was lying there. I ran back for a light. And there was the poor fellow, a great gash in his throat, and the whole place swimming in blood. He lay on his back, his knees drawn up, and his mouth horribly open. I shall see him in my dreams. 
I had just time to blow on my police whistle, and then I must have fainted, for I knew nothing more until I found the policeman standing over me in the hall. "'Well, who was the murdered man?' asked Holmes. "'There's nothing to show who he was,' said Lestrade. "'You shall see the body at the mortuary, but we have made nothing of it up to now. He is a tall man, sunburned, very powerful, not more than thirty. He is poorly dressed, and yet does not appear to be a laborer. A horn-handled clasp-knife was lying in a pool of blood beside him. Whether it was the weapon which did the deed, or whether it belonged to the dead man, I do not know. There was no name on his clothing, and nothing in his pockets save an apple, some string, a shilling map of London, and a photograph. Here it is. It was evidently taken by a snapshot from a small camera. It represented an alert, sharp-featured simian man, with thick eyebrows and a very peculiar projection of the lower part of the face, like the muzzle of a baboon. "'And what became of the bust?' asked Holmes, after a careful study of this picture. "'We had news of it just before you came. It has been found in the front garden of an empty house in Camden House Road. It was broken into fragments. I am going round now to see it. Will you come?' "'Certainly. I must just take one look round.' He examined the carpet in the window. "'The fellow had either very long legs or was a most active man,' said he. With an area beneath, it was no mean feat to reach that window-ledge and open that window. Getting back was comparatively simple. Are you coming with us to see the remains of your bust, Mr. Harker? The disconsolate journalist had seated himself at a writing-table. I must try and make something of it, said he, though I have no doubt that the first editions of the evening papers are out already with full details. It's like my luck. You remember when the stand fell at Doncaster? Well, I was the only journalist in the stand, and my journal the only one that had no account of it, for I was too shaken to write it. And now I'll be too late with a murder done on my own doorstep. As we left the room, we heard his pen traveling shrilly over the fool's cap. The spot where the fragments of the bust had been found was only a few hundred yards away. For the first time our eyes rested upon this presentment of the great emperor, which seemed to raise such frantic and destructive hatred in the mind of the unknown. It lay scattered in splintered shards upon the grass. Holmes picked up several of them and examined them carefully. I was convinced, from his intent face and his purposeful manner, that at last he was upon a clue. "'Well?' asked Lestrade. Holmes shrugged his shoulders. We have a long way to go yet, said he. And yet, and yet, well, we have some suggestive facts to act upon. The possession of this trifling bust was worth more, in the eyes of this strange criminal, than a human life. That is one point. Then there is the singular fact that he did not break it in the house, or immediately outside the house, if to break it was his sole object. He was rattled and bustled by meeting this other fellow. He hardly knew what he was doing. Well, that's likely enough, but I wish to call your attention very particularly to the position of this house in the garden of which the bust was destroyed. Lestrade looked about him. It was an empty house, and so he knew that he would not be disturbed in the garden. Yes, but there is another empty house farther up the street which he must have passed before he came to this one. Why did he not break it there, since it is evident that every yard that he carried it increased the risk of someone meeting him? 
I give it up, said Lestrade. Holmes pointed to the street lamp above our heads. He could see what he was doing here, and he could not there. That was his reason. By Jove, that's true, said the detective. Now that I come to think of it, Dr. Barnicot's bust was broken not far from his red lamp. Well, Mr. Holmes, what are we to do with that fact? To remember it, to docket it. We may come on something later which will bear upon it. What steps do you propose to take now, Lestrade? The most practical way of getting at it, in my opinion, is to identify the dead man. There should be no difficulty about that. When we have found who he is, and who his associates are, we should have a good start in learning what he was doing in Pitt Street last night, and who it was who met him and killed him on the doorstep of Mr. Horace Harker. Don't you think so? No doubt, and yet it is not quite the way in which I should approach the case. What would you do, then? Oh, you must not let me influence you in any way. I suggest that you go on your line, and I on mine. We can compare notes afterwards, and each will supplement the other. Very good, said Lestrade. If you are going back to Pitt Street, you might see Mr. Horace Harker. Tell him from me that I have quite made up my mind, and that it is certain that a dangerous homicidal lunatic with Napoleonic delusions was in his house last night. It will be useful for his article. Lestrade stared. You don't seriously believe that? Holmes smiled. Don't I? Well, perhaps I don't. But I am sure that it will interest Mr. Horace Harker and the subscribers of the Central Press Syndicate. Now, Watson, I think that we shall find that we have a long and rather complex day's work before us. I should be glad, Lestrade, if you could make it convenient to meet us at Baker Street at six o'clock this evening. Until then, I should like to keep this photograph found in the dead man's pocket. It is possible that I may have to ask your company and assistance upon a small expedition which will have to be undertaken to-night, if my chain of reasoning should prove to be correct. Until then, good-bye and good luck. Sherlock Holmes and I walked together to the high street, where we stopped at the shop of Harding Brothers, whence the bust had been purchased. A young assistant informed us that Mr. Harding would be absent until afternoon, and that he was himself a newcomer who could give us no information. Holmes's face showed his disappointment and annoyance. "'Well, well, we can't expect to have it all our own way, Watson,' he said at last. "'We must come back in the afternoon, if Mr. Harding will not be here until then. I am, as you have no doubt surmised, endeavouring to trace these busts to their source, in order to find if there is not something peculiar which may account for their remarkable fate. Let us make for Mr. Morse Hudson of the Kennington Road, and see if he can throw any light upon the problem.' A drive of an hour brought us to the picture-dealer's establishment. He was a small, stout man with a red face and a peppery manner. "'Yes, sir. On my very counter, sir,' said he. "'What we pay rates and taxes for, I don't know, when any ruffian can come in and break one's goods. Yes, sir, it was I who sold Dr. Barnicot his two statues. Disgraceful, sir. A nihilist plot. That's what I make it. No one but an anarchist would go about breaking statues.' Red Republicans, that's what I call them. Who did I get the statues from? I don't see what that has to do with it. Well, if you really want to know, I got them from Gelder and Company, in Church Street, Stepney. They are a well-known house in the trade, and have been this twenty years. How many had I? Three. Two and one are three. Two of Dr. Barnicot's, and one smashed in broad daylight on my own counter. 
Do I know that photograph? No, I don't. Yes, I do, though. Why, it's Beppo. He was a kind of Italian piecework man who made himself useful in the shop. He could carve a bit and gild and frame and do odd jobs. The fellow left me last week, and I've heard nothing of him since. No, I don't know where he came from, nor where he went to. I had nothing against him while he was here. He was gone two days before the bust was smashed. "'Well, that's all we could reasonably expect from Morse Hudson,' said Holmes, as we emerged from the shop. "'We have this Beppo as a common factor, both in Kennington and in Kensington, so that is worth a ten-mile drive. Now, Watson, let us make for Gelder and Company, of Stepney, the source and origin of the busts. I shall be surprised if we don't get some help down there.' In rapid succession we passed through the fringe of fashionable London, hotel London, theatrical London, literary London, commercial London, and finally, maritime London, till we came to a riverside city of a hundred thousand souls, where the tenement houses swelter and reek with the outcasts of Europe. Here, in a broad thoroughfare, once the abode of wealthy city merchants, we found the sculpture works for which we searched. Outside was a considerable yard full of monumental masonry. Inside was a large room in which fifty workers were carving or molding. The manager, a big blond German, received us civilly, and gave a clear answer to all Holmes's questions. A reference to his books showed that hundreds of casts had been taken from a marble copy of Devine's Head of Napoleon, but that the three which had been sent to Morse Hudson a year or so before had been half of a batch of six, the other three being sent to Harding Brothers of Kensington. There was no reason why those six should be different from any of the other casts. He could suggest no possible cause why anyone should wish to destroy them. In fact, he laughed at the idea. Their wholesale price was six shillings, but the retailer would get twelve or more. The cast was taken in two moulds from each side of the face, and then these two profiles of plaster of Paris were joined together to make the complete bust. The work was usually done by Italians, in the room we were in. When finished, the busts were put on a table in the passage to dry, and afterwards stored. That was all he could tell us. But the production of the photograph had a remarkable effect upon the manager. His face flushed with anger, and his brows knotted over his blue Teutonic eyes. "'Ah, oh, the rascal!' he cried. "'Yes, indeed, I know him very well. This has always been a respectable establishment, and the only time that we have ever had the police in it was over this very fellow. It was more than a year ago now.' He knifed another Italian in the street, and then he came to the works with the police on his heels, and he was taken here. Beppo was his name. His second name I never knew. Served me right for engaging a man with such a face. But he was a good workman, one of the best. What did he get? The man lived, and he got off with a year. I have no doubt he is out now, but he has not dared to show his nose here. We have a cousin of his here, and I dare say he could tell you where he is. No, no, cried Holmes. Not a word to the cousin, not a word, I beg of you. The matter is very important, and the farther I go with it, the more important it seems to grow. When you referred in your ledger to the sale of those casts, I observed that the date was June 3rd of last year. Could you give me the date when Beppo was arrested? I could tell you roughly by the pay list. The manager answered. Yes, he continued, after some turning over of pages. He was paid last on May 20th. Thank you, said Holmes. 
I don't think that I need intrude upon your time and patience any more. With a last word of caution that he should say nothing as to our researches, we turned our faces westward once more. The afternoon was far advanced before we were able to snatch a hasty luncheon at a restaurant. A news bill at the entrance announced, Kensington Outrage, Murder by a Madman, and the contents of the paper showed that Mr. Horace Harker had got his account into print after all. Two columns were occupied with a highly sensational and flowery rendering of the whole incident. Holmes propped it against the cruet stand and read it while he ate. Once or twice he chuckled. "'This is all right, Watson,' said he. "'Listen to this.' It is satisfactory to know that there can be no difference of opinion upon this case, since Mr. Lestrade, one of the most experienced members of the official force, and Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the well-known consulting expert, have each come to the conclusion that the grotesque series of incidents, which have ended in so tragic a fashion, arise from lunacy rather than from deliberate crime. No explanation save mental aberration can cover the facts. The press, Watson, is a most valuable institution, if you only know how to use it. And now, if you have quite finished, we will hark back to Kensington and see what the manager of Harding Brothers has to say on the matter. The founder of that great emporium proved to be a brisk, crisp little person, very dapper and quick, with a clear head and a ready tongue. Yes, sir, I have already read the account in the evening papers. Mr. Horace Harker is a customer of ours. We supplied him with the bust some months ago. We ordered three busts of that sort from Gelder and Company, of Stepney. They are all sold now. To whom? Oh, I dare say by consulting our sales books we could very easily tell you. Yes, we have the entries here. One to Mr. Harker, you see, and one to Mr. Josiah Brown of Laburnum Lodge, Laburnum Vale, Chiswick, and one to Mr. Sandiford of Lower Grove Road, Reading. No, I have never seen this face which you show me in the photograph. You would hardly forget it, would you, sir, for I have seldom seen an uglier. Have we any Italians on the staff? Yes, sir, we have several among our workpeople and cleaners. I dare say they might get a peep at that sales book if they wanted to. There is no particular reason for keeping a watch upon that book. Well, well, it's a very strange business, and I hope that you will let me know if anything comes of your inquiries. Holmes had taken several notes during Mr. Harding's evidence, and I could see that he was thoroughly satisfied by the turn which affairs were taking. He made no remark, however, save that, unless we hurried, we should be late for our appointment with Lestrade. Sure enough, when we reached Baker Street, the detective was already there, and we found him pacing up and down in a fever of impatience. His look of importance showed that his day's work had not been in vain. "'Well,' he asked, "'what luck, Mr. Holmes?' "'We have had a very busy day, and not entirely a wasted one,' my friend explained. "'We have seen both the retailers and also the wholesale manufacturers. "'I can trace each of the busts now from the beginning.' "'The busts?' cried Lestrade. "'Well, well, you have your own methods, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, "'and it is not for me to say a word against them, "'but I think I have done a better day's work than you. "'I have identified the dead man.' "'You don't say so.' and found a cause for the crime. Splendid! We have an inspector who makes a specialty of Saffron Hill and the Italian Quarter. Well, this dead man had some Catholic emblem round his neck, and that, along with his color, made me think he was from the South. Inspector Hill knew him the moment he caught sight of him. 
His name is Pietro Venucci, from Naples, and he is one of the greatest cutthroats in London. He is connected with the Mafia, which, as you know, is a secret political society, enforcing its decrees by murder. Now you see how the affair begins to clear up. The other fellow is probably an Italian also, and a member of the Mafia. He has broken the rules in some fashion. Pietro is set upon his track. Probably the photograph we found in his pocket is the man himself, so that he may not knife the wrong person. He dogs the fellow, he sees him enter a house, he waits outside for him, and in the scuffle he receives his own death wound. How is that, Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Holmes clapped his hands approvingly. "'Excellent, Lestrade, excellent!' he cried. "'But I didn't quite follow your explanation of the destruction of the busts.' "'The busts! You never can get those busts out of your head. "'After all, that is nothing. Petty larceny, six months at the most. "'It is the murder that we are really investigating, "'and I tell you that I am gathering all the threads into my hands.' "'And the next stage?' "'Is a very simple one.' I shall go down with Hill to the Italian quarter, find the man whose photograph we have got, and arrest him on the charge of murder. Will you come with us? I think not. I fancy we can attain our end in a simpler way. I can't say for certain, because it all depends—well, it all depends upon a factor which is completely outside our control. But I have great hopes. In fact, the betting is exactly two to one, that if you will come with us to-night, I shall be able to help you to lay him by the heels. In the Italian quarter? No, I fancy Chiswick is an address which is more likely to find him. If you will come with me to Chiswick to-night, Lestrade, I promise to go to the Italian quarter with you to-morrow, and no harm will be done by the delay. And now I think that a few hours' sleep would do us all good, for I do not propose to leave before eleven o'clock and it is unlikely that we shall be back before morning. You'll dine with us, Lestrade, and then you are welcome to the sofa until it is time for us to start. In the meantime, Watson, I should be glad if you would ring for an express messenger, for I have a letter to send, and it is important that it should go at once. Holmes spent the evening in rummaging among the files of the old daily papers with which one of our lumber-rooms was packed. When at last he descended, it was with triumph in his eyes, but he said nothing to either of us as to the result of his researches. For my own part, I had followed step by step the methods by which he had traced the various windings of this complex case, and, though I could not yet perceive the goal which we would reach, I understood clearly that Holmes expected this grotesque criminal to make an attempt upon the two remaining busts, one of which, I remembered, was at Chiswick. No doubt the object of our journey was to catch him in the very act, and I could not but admire the cunning with which my friend had inserted a wrong clue in the evening paper, so as to give the fellow the idea that he could continue his scheme with impunity. I was not surprised when Holmes suggested that I should take my revolver with me. He had himself picked up the loaded hunting crop, which was his favorite weapon. A four-wheeler was at the door at eleven, and in it we drove to a spot at the other side of Hammersmith Bridge. Here the cabman was directed to wait. A short walk brought us to a secluded road fringed with pleasant houses, each standing in its own grounds. In the light of a street lamp we read Laburnum Villa upon the gatepost of one of them. The occupants had evidently retired to rest, for all was dark save for a fanlight over the hall door, which shed a single blurred circle onto the garden path. 
The wooden fence which separated the grounds from the road threw a dense black shadow upon the inner side, and here it was that we crouched. "'I fear that you'll have a long wait,' Holmes whispered. "'We may thank our stars that it is not raining. I don't think we can even venture to smoke to pass the time. However, it's a two-to-one chance that we get something to pay us for our trouble.' It proved, however, that our vigil was not to be so long as Holmes had led us to fear, and it ended in a very sudden and singular fashion. In an instant, without the least sound to warn us of his coming, the garden gate swung open, and a lithe, dark figure, as swift and active as an ape, rushed up the garden path. We saw it whisk past the light thrown from over the door and disappear against the black shadow of the house. There was a long pause, during which we held our breath and then a very gentle creaking sound came to our ears. The window was being opened. The noise ceased, and again there was a long silence. The fellow was making his way into the house. We saw the sudden flash of a dark lantern inside the room. What he saw was evidently not there, for again we saw the flash through another blind, and then through another. "'Let us get to the open window. We will nab him as he climbs out,' Lestrade whispered. But before we could move, the man had emerged again. As he came out into the glimmering patch of light, we saw that he carried something white under his arm. He looked stealthily all round him. The silence of the deserted street reassured him. Turning his back upon us, he laid down his burden, and the next instant there was the sound of a sharp tap, followed by a clatter and rattle. The man was so intent upon what he was doing that he never heard our steps as we stole across the grass plot. With the bound of a tiger, Holmes was on his back, and an instant later Lestrade and I had him by either wrist, and the handcuffs had been fastened. As we turned him over, I saw a hideous, sallow face, with writhing, furious features glaring up at us, and I knew that it was indeed the man of the photograph whom we had secured. But it was not our prisoner to whom Holmes was giving his attention. Squatted on the doorstep, he was engaged in most carefully examining that which the man had brought from the house. It was a bust of Napoleon, like the one which we had seen that morning, and it had been broken into similar fragments. Carefully Holmes held each separate shard to the light, but in no way did it differ from any other shattered piece of plaster. He had just completed his examination when the hall lights flew up, the door opened, and the owner of the house, a jovial rotund figure in shirt and trousers, presented himself. "'Mr. Josiah Brown, I suppose?' said Holmes. "'Yes, sir. And you, no doubt, are Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I had the note which you sent by the express messenger, and I did exactly what you told me. We locked every door on the inside and awaited developments. Well, I'm very glad to see that you have got the rascal. I hope, gentlemen, that you will come in and have some refreshment.' However, Lestrade was anxious to get his man into safe quarters, so within a few minutes our cab had been summoned, and we were all four upon our way to London. Not a word would our captive say, but he glared at us from the shadow of his matted hair, and once, when my hand seemed within his reach, he snapped at it like a hungry wolf. We stayed long enough at the police station to learn that a search of his clothing revealed nothing save a few shillings and a long sheath-knife, the handle of which bore copious traces of recent blood. "'That's all right,' said Lestrade as we parted. "'Hill knows all these gentry, and he will give a name to him.' You'll find that my theory of the Mafia will work out all right. But I'm sure I am exceedingly obliged to you, Mr. Holmes, for the workmanlike way in which you laid hands upon him. 
I don't quite understand it all yet. I fear it is rather too late an hour for explanations, said Holmes. Besides, there are one or two details which are not finished off, and it is one of those cases which are worth working out to the very end. If you will come round once more to my rooms at six o'clock tomorrow, I think I shall be able to show you that even now you have not grasped the entire meaning of this business, which presents some features which make it absolutely original in the history of crime. If ever I permit you to chronicle any more of my little problems, Watson, I foresee that you will enliven your pages by an account of the singular adventure of the Napoleonic busts. When we met again next evening, Lestrade was furnished with much information concerning our prisoner. His name, it appeared, was Beppo, second name unknown. He was a well-known ne'er-do-well among the Italian colony. He had once been a skillful sculptor, and had earned an honest living, but he had taken to evil courses, and had twice already been in jail, once for a petty theft, and once, as we had already heard, for stabbing a fellow-countryman. He could talk English perfectly well. His reasons for destroying the busts were still unknown, and he refused to answer any questions upon the subject. But the police had discovered that these same busts might very well have been made by his own hands, since he was engaged in this class of work at the establishment of Gelder and Company. To all this information, much of which we already knew, Holmes listened with polite attention. But I, who knew him so well, could clearly see that his thoughts were elsewhere and i detected a mixture of mingled uneasiness and expectation beneath that mask which he was wont to assume at last he started in his chair and his eyes brightened there had been a ring at the bell a minute later we heard steps upon the stairs and an elderly red-faced man with grizzled side whiskers was ushered in in his right hand he carried an old-fashioned carpet-bag which he placed upon the table is mr sherlock holmes here my friend bowed and smiled. "'Mr. Sandiford, of Reading, I suppose,' said he. "'Yes, sir. I fear that I am a little late, but the trains were awkward. You wrote to me about a bust that is in my possession.' "'Exactly.' "'I have your letter here. You said, I desire to possess a copy of Devine's Napoleon, and am prepared to pay you ten pounds for the one which is in your possession. Is that right?' "'Certainly.' I was very much surprised at your letter, for I could not imagine how you knew that I owned such a thing. Of course, you must have been surprised, but the explanation is very simple. Mr. Harding, of Harding Brothers, said that they had sold you their last copy, and he gave me your address. Oh, that was it, was it? Did he tell you what I paid for it? No, he did not. Well, I am an honest man, though not a very rich one. I only gave fifteen shillings for the bust, and I think you ought to know that before I take ten pounds from you. I am sure the scruple does you honor, Mr. Sandiford, but I have named that price, so I intend to stick to it. Well, it is very handsome of you, Mr. Holmes. I brought the bust up with me, as you asked me to do. Here it is. He opened his bag, and at last we saw, placed upon our table, a complete specimen of that bust which we had already seen more than once in fragments. Holmes took a paper from his pocket and laid a ten-pound note upon the table. "'You will kindly sign that paper, Mr. Sandiford, in the presence of these witnesses. It is simply to say that you transfer every possible right that you ever had in the bust to me. I am a methodical man, you see, and you never know what turn events might take afterwards.' 
Thank you, Mr. Sandiford. Here is your money, and I wish you a very good evening. When our visitor had disappeared, Sherlock Holmes's movements were such as to rivet our attention. He began by taking a clean white cloth from a drawer and laying it over the table. Then he placed his newly acquired bust in the center of the cloth. Finally he picked up his hunting crop and struck Napoleon a sharp blow on the top of the head. The figure broke into fragments, and Holmes bent eagerly over the shattered remains. Next instant, with a loud shout of triumph, he held up one splinter, in which a round, dark object was fixed like a plum in a pudding. "'Gentlemen,' he cried, "'let me introduce you to the famous Black Pearl of the Borges.' Lestrade and I sat silent for a moment, and then, with a spontaneous impulse, we both broke out clapping, as at the well-wrought crisis of a play. A flush of color sprang to Holmes's pale cheeks, and he bowed to us like the master dramatist who receives the homage of his audience. It was at such moments that, for an instant, he ceased to be a reasoning machine, and betrayed his human love for admiration and applause. The same singularly proud and reserved nature, which turned away with disdain from popular notoriety, was capable of being moved to its depths by spontaneous wonder and praise from a friend. "'Yes, gentlemen,' said he, "'it is the most famous pearl now existing in the world, and it has been my good fortune, by a connected chain of inductive reasoning, to trace it from the Prince of Colonna's bedroom at the Dacre Hotel, where it was lost, to the interior of this, the last of the six busts of Napoleon, which were manufactured by Gelder and Company, of Stepney. You will remember, Lestrade, the sensation caused by the disappearance of this valuable jewel, and the vain efforts of the London police to recover it. I was myself consulted upon the case, but I was unable to throw any light upon it. Suspicion fell upon the maid of the princess, who was an Italian, and it was proved that she had a brother in London, but we failed to trace any connection between them. The maid's name was Lucretia Venucci, and there is no doubt in my mind that this Pietro, who was murdered two nights ago, was the brother. I have been looking up the dates in the old files of the paper, and I find that the disappearance of the pearl was exactly two days before the arrest of Beppo for some crime of violence, an event which took place in the factory of Gelder and Company, at the very moment when these busts were being made. Now you clearly see the sequence of events though you see them, of course, in the inverse order to the way in which they presented themselves to me. Beppo had the pearl in his possession. He may have stolen it from Pietro. He may have been Pietro's confederate. He may have been the go-between of Pietro and his sister. It is of no consequence to us which is the correct solution. The main fact is that he had the pearl, and at that moment, when it was on his person, he was pursued by the police. He made for the factory in which he worked, and he knew that he had only a few minutes in which to conceal this enormously valuable prize, which would otherwise be found on him when he was searched. Six plaster casts of Napoleon were drying in the passage. One of them was still soft. In an instant, Beppo, a skillful workman, made a small hole in the wet plaster, dropped in the pearl, and with a few touches covered over the aperture once more. It was an admirable hiding place. No one could possibly find it but Beppo was condemned to a year's imprisonment, and in the meanwhile his six busts were scattered over London. He could not tell which contained his treasure. Only by breaking them could he see. Even shaking would tell him nothing, for as the plaster was wet, it was probable that the pearl would adhere to it, as, in fact, it has done. 
Beppo did not despair, and he conducted his search with considerable ingenuity and perseverance. Through a cousin who works with Gelder, he found out the retail firms who had bought the busts. He managed to find employment with Morse Hudson, and in that way tracked down three of them. The pearl was not there. Then, with the help of some Italian employee, he succeeded in finding out where the other three busts had gone. The first was at Harker's. There he was dogged by his confederate, who held Beppo responsible for the loss of the pearl, and he stabbed him in the scuffle which followed. "'If he was his confederate, why should he carry his photograph?' I asked. "'As a means of tracing him, if he wished to inquire about him from any third person. That was the obvious reason.' Well, after the murder, I calculated that Beppo would probably hurry, rather than delay his movements. He would fear that the police would read his secret, and so he hastened on before they should get ahead of him. Of course, I could not say that he had not found the pearl in Harker's bust. I had not even concluded for certain that it was the pearl, but it was evident to me that he was looking for something, since he carried the bust past the other houses in order to break it in the garden which had a lamp overlooking it. Since Harker's bust was one in three, the chances were exactly as I told you, two to one against the pearl being inside it. There remained two busts, and it was obvious that he would go for the London one first. I warned the inmates of the house so as to avoid a second tragedy, and we went down with the happiest results. By that time, of course, I knew for certain that it was the Borgia pearl that we were after. The name of the murdered man linked the one event with the other. There only remained a single bust, the Redding one, and the pearl must be there. I bought it in your presence from the owner, and there it lies. We sat in silence for a moment. Well, said Lestrade, I've seen you handle a good many cases, Mr. Holmes, but I don't know that I ever knew a more workmanlike one than that. We're not jealous of you at Scotland Yard. No, sir, we are very proud of you. And if you come down tomorrow, there's not a man from the oldest inspector to the youngest constable who wouldn't be glad to shake you by the hand. Thank you, said Holmes. Thank you. And as he turned away, it seemed to me that he was more nearly moved by the softer human emotions than I had ever seen him. A moment later, he was the cold and practical thinker once more. Put the pearl in the safe, Watson, said he and get out the papers of the Conk Singleton forgery case. Good-bye, Lestrade. If any little problem comes your way, I shall be happy, if I can, to give you a hint or two as to its solution. End of the Adventure of the Six Napoleons by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Read by Laurie Ann Walden Article six of the Constitution of the Confederate States of America. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Article six. One. The government established by this Constitution is a successor to the provisional government of the Confederate States of America and all the laws passed by the latter shall continue in force until the same shall be repealed or modified, and all the officers appointed by the same shall remain in office until their successors are appointed and qualified, or the offices abolished. 2. 
all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the Confederate States under this Constitution as under the provisional government. 3. This Constitution and the laws of the Confederate States made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the Confederate States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every State shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any State to the contrary notwithstanding. 4. The Senators and Representatives before mentioned, and the members of the several State Legislatures, and all executive and judicial officers, both of the Confederate States and of the several States, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. But no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the Confederate States. 5. The enumeration, in the Constitution, of certain rights, shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people of the several States. 6. The powers not delegated to the Confederate States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the States, are reserved to the States respectively, or to the people thereof. End of Article 6 of the Constitution of the Confederate States of America Read by James Christopher J.X. Christopher at Yahoo.com Le cerf-volant aux six têtes ou l'homme du jour by Guillaume Tyrant Périgord. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Nadine Eckert-Boulet. Le cerf-volant aux six têtes ou l'homme du jour. Plusieurs censeurs, dont la manie est de montrer une extrême sévérité en fait des productions des arts et des lettres, condamnent les pamphlets et les caricatures, comme certains juges condamnent les plaideurs, sans quelquefois avoir entendu ou compris leur cause. Loin de partager une opinion aussi étrange qu'impolitique, nous pensons qu'il est des circonstances où ces espèces de productions peuvent rendre les plus grands services. Convaincu par l'expérience et par le précepte du philosophe le plus gai de l'Antiquité, que l'arme des ridicules a plus de force et d'efficacité que les raisonnements méthodiques mais froids, nous regardons les caricatures et les pamphlets, dont le sujet est puisé dans une vérité utile à connaître, dans un personnage qu'il est important de démasquer, comme autant de sentinelles qui veillent à la sûreté et à la tranquillité publique. Loi a sans doute une voix bien différente de celle du Rossignol. Mais n'est-ce pas une loi qui, par ses cris, avertit les Romains de l'attaque nocturne de l'ennemi et sauva le Capitole Il est, je l'avoue, des monstruosités en littérature et dans les arts que la malignité intéressée n'offre que trop souvent à la malignité curieuse. Mais parce que des fils où battent et font circuler de la fausse monnaie, faut-il proscrire la bonne, ne fût-ce qu'une obole Parmi les caricatures qui méritent d'être distinguées, nous citerons celle qui est intitulée « L'homme aux six têtes », auquel nous avons cru donner, et pour cause, le titre de « Cerf-volant aux six têtes ». Elle est exposée au regard du public depuis quelques semaines, et ne cesse d'exciter un intérêt toujours croissant. Son sujet est un boiteux très connu, qui depuis l'espace de vingt-cinq ans, changeant six fois de costume, d'opinion et de langage, crie tantôt 
Vive la nation, la loi, le roi Tantôt, vive la république Ici, vive l'empereur Là, vive le roi Etc. Le tout en raison des circonstances et des places qu'il occupe ou veut obtenir. Les hommes honnêtes, qui croient difficilement à de si étranges métamorphoses, ont paru douter qu'il existât réellement un caméléon de cette espèce. Mais peuvent-ils se dissimuler qu'il existe au Congrès de Vienne un homme qui, après avoir humilié par divers traités en faveur de la France les puissances qui le composent, fait depuis deux mois tous ses efforts pour livrer cette même France à ses mêmes souverains N'est-ce pas lui qui, longtemps ministre de Napoléon, dont il avait obtenu toute la confiance et toute la fortune à laquelle un sujet peut prétendre, s'est tout à coup déclaré contre ce monarque au moment où des traîtres vendaient à l'ennemi ce grand homme et son empire Eh hey, que n'a-t-il pas fait depuis Ou plutôt, que n'avait-il pas fait auparavant N'est-ce pas encore lui qui... Mais respectons les faiblesses humaines, et n'attaquons que les vices du cœur, en démasquant ces hommes versatiles et dissimulés, toujours prêts à crier indifféremment « Vive le roi Vive la Ligue !» Protés aussi dangereux aux souverains qu'ils prétendent servir qu'au peuple dont ils consomment la honte et la ruine. Ce n'est pas sans fondement qu'on vient d'établir l'ordre de la girouette. Cette institution, d'où émanent chaque jour les sujets des meilleurs pamphlets et des caricatures les plus fidèles, est un foyer de lumière. D'où sortent aussi quantité de vérités utiles concernant les intrigants et les janus de toute espèce. La nomenclature des membres de cet ordre est une liste infiniment utile à consulter pour tous ceux qui, soit dans le gouvernement, soit partout ailleurs, ont des places de confiance à donner. On étendait, en Égypte, sur les bancs des tribunaux, la peau des juges qui s'étaient laissés corrompre et qu'on avait écorchés tout vivant. Exemple que les nations européennes, beaucoup plus civilisées ou civiles, n'ont pas cru devoir imiter sans doute pour conserver l'intégrité et l'indépendance des juges. Pourquoi n'inscrirait-on pas à la porte de chaque ministère les noms des principaux chevaliers de l'ordre de la girouette En attendant cette mesure salutaire que les circonstances actuelles semblent provoquer et justifier, nous avons cru devoir appeler l'attention du public sur la caricature de l'homme aux six têtes, sur lequel on a fait les deux couplets suivants, qui ne sont pas encore connus. Sur l'air « Où allez-vous, monsieur l'abbé Vous allez vous casser le nez, etc. » Aussi tête le cerf-volant, qui tourne toujours à tout vent, montre de la constance, pourtant, à vendre encore la France au plus cher aux francs. Mais gare un plat de sa façon. S'il pouvait à Napoléon vendre l'Europe entière, oui, bien, comme il l'eût fait naguère, vous m'entendez bien. End of le cerf-volant aussi tête ou l'homme du jour By Guillaume Taillerand Périgord. Dedication and Preface of If, Yes, and Perhaps Four Possibilities and Six Exaggerations With Some Bits of Fact By Edward E. Hale This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, Or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dedication 
I dedicate this book to the youngest of my friends, now two hours old. Fun, fact, and fancy. May his fresh life mix the three in their just proportions. Milton, June 6, 1868. Preface to the Third Edition The title to this book has met with general opprobrium, except in a few quarters where it was fortunately regarded as beneath contempt. Colonel Ingram even exacted an explanation by telegraph from the editor when he learned from the Governor-General of Northern Siberia what the title was. This explanation the editor gave in the following note. It is, however, impossible to change the title, as he proposes. For reasons known to all statesmen, it is out of the question to swap horses in crossing a river, and all publishers know that it is equally impossible to change titles under those circumstances. Boston, October 17, 1868. My dear Colonel Ingram, I have your note complaining of the sensational title, somewhat affected, as you think, which I gave to our little storybook. Of course I am sorry you do not like the name, but, while you strike, I beg you to hear. I readily acceded to your original title, and called the book in manuscript as you bade me. Quote, a few short sketches taken from ancient history, modern travel, and the realm of imagination, illustrative of the poetry of the Bible, the history of Christianity, the manners of the times, and the politics of the present and past generations. Unquote. This title would, I admit, meet the views of most of our present critics, but I abandon it on my own responsibility, you being then beyond the telegraph at the mouth of the Obi River because it occurred to me that, under the catalogue rules of Panisi and the lamented Jouet, we should be indexed and catalogued at few. I did not think that a good omen. Relinquishing, therefore, the effort at description of subject, I tried description of object, and determined on this, quote, Moral sketches of human society, in the past, the present, and imagined worlds, unquote by F, I, etc., etc., etc. But, as I slept and waked on this, I said, Who knows that these are moral sketches? We wish them to be moral, but Ingram's having been attacked by such patient critics as read them as being immoral, while many of the sketches seem to have no moral at all. Who are we to claim that we have attained a moral standard? Waking and sleeping once more, I asked myself, what are the things, poor, nameless, heathen children, that can get no sponsor and no Christian baptism? I said, in reply, that at least one of them was the living truth, so far as it could be squeezed out of blue books and the most proper of documents. Others might have been true if the destinies had so willed. Others would have been true had they not been untrue. Others should have been true had poetic justice been the working rule of a vulgar world. Quote, might, could, would, or should, unquote, then would have been an available name for most of them, unless one took from the older grammars the title of the potential mood. But you observe, my dear Ingram, that our little storybook is destined mostly for young readers, who know no more of the potential mood than they know of the surrender of Cornwallis. This they celebrated. And, besides, we have some facts in the treaties which are not hypothetical, 
why ignore them? Do you not see that your miserable suggestion of, quote, the potential mood, unquote, is as worthless as it is sensational, and fails as not comprehensive, inadequate, unintelligible, and not true. For these reasons, I settled on the plain, straightforward title of unadorned truth, viz., quote, four possibilities, six exaggerations, and some bits of fact. And with this, we went to the publisher. But as I entered his shop, a boy from Dutton's rushed in with his order book and cried, I want seventy chimes and ninety Ivanhoe. What, said I, if, by any good fortune, it had been our story-book that was wanted? This boy would have then called for seventy four possibilities. Can there be so many in a world which runs in grooves? Will he ever get the number that he needs of our treatises? Alexander a robber? Let me reflect. Reflecting thus, I determined that the title of a book must be 1. Brief 2. Intelligible 3. Suggestive 4. It must not begin with a numeral. I took a Tretmont streetcar and returned home. What, I said, in the night watches, is the briefest expression of a possibility? Surely it is in the word, perhaps. What of a fact? Surely it is yes what of an exaggeration why it is that which would be true if it had not been overstated our title then clearly is perhaps yes and if i see that critics would have been better satisfied with this but on the principle of the little elephants sacrificing themselves in the passage of a river mr fields and i determined to start the smallest word first and thus to drive a gentle wedge into the close chasm of the public favor. Sensitive, however, as I am, dear Ingram, to your criticism, I will at the earliest opportunity consult with him as to a return to the original title. Quote, a few sketches, star, 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 illustrative, unquote, etc., etc., etc. Or might we not let the one word, etc., stand alone? Or thus, with the stars, quote, star, 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 etc., etc., etc. Yours truly, E. E. Hale. The end of dedication and preface of If, Yes, and Perhaps, Four Possibilities and Six Exaggerations with Some Bits of Fact by Edward E. Hale. Read by David Lawrence in Brampton, Ontario. Deep Sea Thermometers on Sixes Principle Section 89 of A Treatise on Meteorological Instruments by Negretti and Zambra This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 89 Deep Sea Thermometers on Sixes Principle Thermometers for ascertaining the temperature of the sea at various depths are constructed to register either the maximum or minimum temperature, or both. The principle of each instrument is that of six. There are very few parts of the ocean in which the temperature below is greater than at the surface, except in the polar seas, 
where it is generally found to be a few degrees warmer at considerable depths than at the surface when the instrument is required to register only one temperature it can be made narrower and more compact a great advantage in sounding and with less length of bulb and glass tube so that the liability of error is diminished hence the minimum is the most generally useful for deep-sea soundings these thermometers must be sufficiently strong to withstand the pressure of the ocean at two or three miles of depth where there may be a force exerted to compress them exceeding three or four hundred atmospheres of fifteen pounds to the square inch many have been the contrivances for obtaining correct deep-sea indications thermometers and machines of various sorts have been suggested adopted and eventually abandoned as only approximate instruments the principal reason for such instruments failing to give correct or reliable indications has been that the weight or pressure on the bulbs at great depths has interfered with the correct reading of the instruments thermometers have been enclosed in strong watertight cases to resist the pressure but this contrivance has only had the tendency to retard the action so much so as to throw a doubt on the indications obtained by the instruments so constructed the thermometers constructed by messrs negretti and zambra for this purpose do not differ materially from those usually made under the denomination of sixes thermometers except in the following most important particular the usual sixes thermometers have a central reservoir or cylinder containing alcohol this reservoir which is the only portion of the instrument likely to be affected by pressure has been in negretti and zambra's new instrument superseded by a strong outer cylinder of glass containing mercury and rarefied air by this means the portion of the instrument susceptible of compression has been so strengthened that no amount of pressure can possibly make the instrument vary this instrument has been tested in every possible manner and the results have been highly satisfactory so much so as to place their reliability beyond any possible doubt the scales are made of porcelain and are firmly secured to a back of oak which holds in a recess the bulb with its protecting shield and is rounded off so as to fit easily and firmly in a stout cylindrical copper case in which the thermometer is sent down when sounding the lid of the case is made to fit down closely and watertight at the bottom of the case is a valve opening upward and the lid has a similar valve these allow the water to pass through the case as the instrument sinks so that the least amount of obstruction is offered to the descent at the lower end of the case is a stout brass spring to protect the instrument from a sudden jar if it should touch the bottom while descending rapidly as the instrument is drawn up the valves close with the weight of water upon them and it arrives at the surface filled with water brought up from its lowest position the deep sea thermometers used in the royal navy are of this pattern End of section 89 of a treatise on meteorological instruments by Negretti and Zambra. The definitions of Book 6 of The Elements by Euclid. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Elements by Euclid Book 6 Application of the Theory of Proportion Definitions 1. 
similar rectilineal figures are those whose several angles are equal each to each and whose sides about the equal angles are proportional footnote similar figures agree in shape if they agree also in size they are congruent one when the shape of a figure is given it is said to be given in species thus a triangle whose angles are given is given in species hence similar figures are of the same species two when the size of a figure is given it is said to be given in magnitude for instance a square whose side is of given length three when the place which a figure occupies is known it is said to be given in position End footnote. two a right line is said to be cut at a point in extreme and mean ratio when the whole line is to the greater segment as the greater segment is to the less three if three quantities of the same kind be in continued proportion the middle term is called a mean proportional between the other two magnitudes in continued proportion are also said to be in geometrical progression four if four quantities of the same kind be in continued proportion the two middle terms are called two mean proportionals between the other two. 5. The altitude of any figure is the length of the perpendicular from its highest point to its base. 6. Two corresponding angles of two figures have the sides about them reciprocally proportional when a side of the first is to a side of the second as the remaining side of the second is to the remaining side of the first footnote this is evidently equivalent to saying that a side of the first is to a side of the second in the reciprocal ratio of the remaining side of the first to the remaining side of the second End footnote end of the definitions of book six of the elements by euclid read by Hawaii in july two thousand eleven eighteen sixty two from poems by marietta holly this is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of librivox all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. 1862 There's a tear in your eye, little Sybil, gathering large and slow. Oh, Sybil, sweet little Sybil, what are you thinking of now? Push back the velvet curtains that darken the lonely room, for shadows peer out of the crimson depths, and the statues gleam white in the gloom. How the cannon's thunder rolls along and shakes the lattice and wall. Oh, Sybil, sweet little Sybil, what if your father should fall? The smoky clouds sweep up from the field and darken the earth and sea. God save him, God save him, wherever he may be. O oh, pretty dark-eyed bird of the south, with your face so mournful and white, there is many a little northern girl that is breathing that prayer tonight. 
There's a little girl on the hills of Maine, looking out through the fading light. She looks down the winding path and says, He will surely come tonight. The table is set, the lamp is trimmed, the fire has a ruddy glow, as streams like a beacon down the path to the dusky valley below. There is smiling hope on the pretty face, pressed so close to the pane, and her eyes are like blue violets after a summer rain. How you tremble, little Sybil, at the cannon's dreadful sound. Did you see far away the fallen seed and its rider prone on the ground? The dark brown locks so low in the dust, the scarf with the crimson stain. Oh, Sybil, poor little Sybil, he will not come back again. Rides gallantly and well he fought, hand to hand with as brave a foe, their faces hid by the nodding plumes and the dense clouds hanging low. Did they think, these hawk-blooded captains, that death was so close by their side? When Howard has fallen, the bravest, rung out on the air far and wide. Howard? His foeman kneels by his side and raises his head to his knee. Oh, God, that brothers should part in youth, and thus should their meeting be. Unheard is the deafening battle roar, unseen is that dying look. He hears but the sound of a childish laugh and the song of a northern book. He sees two white forms kneeling in the twilight sweet and dim, one little coach angel guarded by a mother's evening hymn. The angel of death came down with the night, came down with the gathering gloom. God pitied the little dark-eyed girl alone in the lonely room. But still by his side his brother kneels, chill horror has frozen his veins. He heeds not the glancing shower of shells that with red fire glitters and rains. And he heeds not the fiery cavalry charge that sweeps like a billow on to death, oh, the bravest and saddest sight that man ever gazed upon. The last shot, what is one life to the battle's gory gain? But, alas, for the little blue eyed maid away on the hills of Maine. End of eighteen sixty two from Poems by Marietta Holly. Recording by Gabrielle C. Excerpt from the Diary of Samuel Pepys, June 6, 1666. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sixth. Up betimes, and vexed with my people for having a key taken out of the chamber doors, and nobody knew where it was and also with my boy for not being ready as soon as I, though I called him, whereupon I boxed him soundly, and then to my business at the office, and on the victualling office, and thence by water to St. James, whither he is now gone, it being a monthly fast day for the plague. There we all met, and did our business as usual with the Duke, and among other things had Captain Cock's proposal of East Country Goods read, brought by my Lord Brunker, which I make use of as a monkey do the cat's foot. Sir W. Coventry did much oppose it, and it's likely it will not do. So away goes my hopes of five hundred pounds. Thence after the Duke into the park, walking through to Whitehall, and there everybody listening for guns, but none heard, and every creature is now overjoyed, and concludes upon very good grounds that the Dutch are beaten because we have heard no guns nor no news of our fleet. By and by, walking a little further, Sir Philip Froude did meet the Duke, 
with an express to sir w coventry who was by from captain taylor the storekeeper at harwich being the narration of captain hayward of the dunkirk who gives a very serious account how upon monday the two fleets fought all day till seven at night and then the whole fleet of dutch did betake themselves to a very plain flight and never looked back again that sir christopher mings is wounded in the leg that the general is well that it is conceived reasonably that of all the dutch fleet which with what recruits they had come to one hundred sail there is not above fifty got home and of them few if any of their flags and that little captain bell in one of the fire-ships did at the end of the day fire a ship of seventy guns we were also overtaken with this good news that the duke ran with it to the king who was gone to chapel and there all the court was in a hubbub being rejoiced over head and ears in this good news away go i by coach to the new exchange and there did spread this good news a little though i find it had broke out before and so home to our own church it being the common fast day and it was just before sermon but lord how all the people in the church stared upon me to see me whisper to sir john minns and my lady pen anon i saw people stirring and whispering below and by and by comes up the sexton from my lady ford to tell me the news which i had brought being now sent into the church by sir w batten in writing and handed from pew to pew but uh, that which pleased me as much as the news was to have the fair mrs middleton at our church who is indeed a very beautiful lady here after sermon comes to our office forty people almost of all sorts and qualities to hear the news which i took great delight to tell them then home and found my wife at dinner not knowing of my being at church and after dinner my father and she out to hales's where my father is to begin to sit to-day for his picture which i have a desire to have i all the afternoon at home doing some business drawing up my vows for the rest of the year to christmas but lord to see in what a condition of happiness i am if i would but keep myself so but my love of pleasure is such that my very soul is angry with itself for my vanity in so doing anon took coach and to hales's but he was gone out and my father and wife gone so i to lovett's and there to my trouble saw plainly that my project of varnished books will not take it not keeping colour not being able to take polishing upon a single paper thence home and my father and wife not coming in i proceeded with my coach to take a little air as far as bow all alone and there turned back and home but before i got home the bonfires were lighted all the town over and i going through crouched friars seeing mercer at her mother's gate stopped and light and into her mother's the first time i ever was there and find all my people father and all at a very fine supper at w hewer's lodging very neatly and to my great pleasure after supper into his chamber which is mighty fine with pictures and everything else very curious which pleased me exceedingly thence to the gate with the women all about me 
and Mrs. Mercer's son had provided a great many serpents, and so I made the women all fire some serpents. By and by comes in our fair neighbour Mrs. Turner, and two neighbours' daughters, Mrs. Tite, the elder of whom, a long red-nosed silly jade, the younger, a pretty black girl, and the merriest sprightly jade that ever I saw. With them idled away the whole night, till twelve at night, at the bonfire in the streets. Some of the people thereabouts going about with muskets, and did give me two or three volleys of their muskets, I giving them a crown to drink. And so home. Mightily pleased with this happy day's news, and the more, because confirmed by Sir Daniel Harvey, who was in the whole fight with the general, and tells me that there appear but thirty-six in all of the Dutch fleet left at the end of the voyage, when they run home. The joy of the city was this night exceeding great. End of Excerpt from the Diary of Samuel Pepys, June 6th, 1666 Read by Bob Gonzalez The first six verses of the ninetieth psalm versified by Robert Burns. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. O thou, the first, the greatest friend of all the human race, whose strong right hand has ever been their stay and dwelling-place. Before the mountains heaved their heads beneath thy forming hand, before this ponderous globe itself arose at thy command, that power which raised and still upholds this universal frame from countless unbeginning time was ever still the same. Those mighty periods of years, which seem to us so vast, appear no more before thy sight than yesterday that's past thou givest the word thy creature man is to existence brought again thou sayst ye sons of men return ye into naught thou layest them with all their cares in everlasting sleep as with a flood thou takest them off with overwhelming sweep they flourish like the morning flower in beauty's pride arrayed. But long ere night cut down it lies, all withered and decayed. End of the first six verses of the ninetieth psalm versified by Robert Burns. Read by Bob Gonzalez, Tampa, Florida. Fifth the Sixth, Hunting of the Snark by Lewis Carroll this is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE BARRISTER'S DREAM They sought it with thimbles, they sought it with care, they pursued it with forks and hope, they threatened its life with a railway share, they charmed it with smiles and soap. But the barrister, weary of proving in vain that the beaver's lace-making was wrong, 
fell asleep and in dreams saw the creature quite plain that his fancy had dwelt on so long he dreamed that he stood in a shadowy court where the snark with a glass in its eye dressed in gown bands and wig was defending a pig on the charge of deserting its sty the witnesses proved without error or flaw that the sty was deserted when found and the judge kept explaining the state of the law in a soft undercurrent of sound the indictment had never been clearly expressed and it seemed that the snark had begun and had spoken three hours before any one guessed what the pig was supposed to have done the jury had each formed a different view long before the indictment was read and they all spoke at once so that none of them knew one word that the others had said you must know said the judge but the snark exclaimed fudge that statute is obsolete quite let me tell you my friends the whole question depends on an ancient manorial right in the matter of treason the pig would appear to have aided but scarcely abetted while the charge of insolvency fails it is clear if you grant the plea never indebted the fact of desertion i will not dispute but its guilt as i trust is removed so far as relates to the cost of this suit by the alibi which has been proved my poor client's fate now depends on your votes here the speaker sat down in his place and directed the judge to refer to his notes and briefly to sum up the case but the judge said he never had summed up before so the snark undertook it instead and summed it so well that it came to far more than the witnesses ever had said when the verdict was called for the jury declined as the word was so puzzling to spell but they ventured to hope that the snark wouldn't mind undertaking that duty as well so the snark found the verdict although as it owned it was spent with the toils of the day when it said the word guilty the jury all groaned and some of them fainted away then the snark pronounced sentence the judge being quite too nervous to utter a word when it rose to its feet there was silence like night and the fall of a pin might be heard transportation for life was the sentence it gave and then to be fined forty pound the jury all cheered though the judge said he feared that the phrase was not legally sound but their wild exultation was suddenly checked when the jailer informed them with tears such a sentence would not have the slightest effect as the pig had been dead for some years the judge left the court looking deeply disgusted but the snark though a little aghast as the lawyer to whom the defence was entrusted went bellowing on to the last thus the barrister dreamed while the bellowing seemed to grow every moment more clear till he woke to the knell of a furious bell which the bellman rang close at his ear End of Fit the Sixth Hunting of the Snark by Lewis Carroll Read by Rhonda Fetterman Gaudriole en six couplets dédié aux plus gais de mes confrères By Unknown This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Nadine Eckert-Boulet 1. Chers amis, je ne puis vous taire à quel point je suis malheureux. Compatissez à ma misère, hélas, c'en est fait de ma queue. Notre syndic impitoyable m'a dit, par la chambre envoyée, « C'est un arrêt irrévocable. Confrère, il faut vous la couper. » 2. Au voisin, elle porte ombrage. Elle est trop longue, elle est trop haut. Mon Dieu, je croyais qu'à mon âge, cela n'était pas un défaut. Jamais fille, femme ou duègne, je vous le dis sans vanité, ne l'a prise pour une enseigne. Pourtant, on veut me la couper. 3. Le syndic, touché de ma peine, accepterait qu'on la tordît, que, comme un ressort de baleine, l'abaissant, on la raccourcit. Mais, hélas, elle est bien trop raide, vous ne pourriez pas la courber. Ne comptez pas qu'elle vous cède, il faudrait plutôt la couper. 4. Faites-moi grâce temporaire, longtemps encore j'en veux user. Ce n'est pas un membre honoraire, laissez-lui le temps d'exercer. Il résiste à vos remontrances, voyez quel caractère entier. Il est entier, pas d'indulgence, c'est bien le cas de la couper. 5. Dans une passe si cruelle, si ma gaieté vous a surpris, vous songiez à la bagatelle. Ce n'est pas de ça qu'il s'agit. Pour emmancher la République, j'ai fait à ma porte accrochée une tige en fer magnifique. C'est cette queue qu'on veut couper. 6. Syndic, excusez ma licence, et, vous, pardonnez, mes amis. J'ai pensé qu'à la conférence, en chantant, tout était permis. Mais sur mon droit, si d'aventure, par malheur, je m'étais trompé, bien que l'amputation soit dure, c'est ça qu'il me faudrait couper. Fin de Gaudriol en six couplets dédié aux plus gais de mes confrères. End of Gaudriol en six couplets dédié aux plus gais de mes confrères by Unknown. General Orders Number no. Six from the Confederate States of America Army District of Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Headquarters, District of Texas, New Mexico and Arizona. Houston, February 23, 1865. General Orders No. 6. 1. At a general court-martial, convened at Galveston, Texas, by virtue of Special Orders No. 7, Paragraph 2, from these headquarters, of which Lieutenant Colonel Ireland is president, was arraigned and tried Private Anton Richers, of DeJay's Light Battery, upon the following charges and specifications, viz. Charge first, desertion. Specification. In this, that the said Private A. Richers did, in the night of the ninth to the 10th of December, 1864, desert his company, stationed on Galveston Island, with the intention to make his way to the enemy's fleet blockading the harbor of Galveston. Early in the morning of the 10th, an alarm was given by some negroes, stationed near the obstructions in the bay, that some men were in distress in the channel, calling for help. Upon which, C. H. Peters of Company B, Engineer Troops, 
a j jackson of first company engineer troops and j w maris of company e second regiment tennessee valley infantry got a boat to render assistance if necessary mr peters took the boat to the place of disaster where he found a boat which had capsized and private a rishers above named and two others clinging to it he took a rishers into the boat intending to land him at the central wharf to which however he objected and was therefore compelled to land him at another point after being landed he made peters promise not to say anything about it and invited him to call at his camp and he would make him a handsome present acknowledging that he had left without the consent of his commanding officer he further stated to private a j jackson first company engineer troops that he was dissatisfied with his lieutenant as also with his grub but would from this time on be content as he had been saved from drowning charge second conduct to the prejudice of good order and military discipline specification in this that the said private a rishers above named did in the night of the ninth to tenth of december eighteen sixty four steal a boat from one of the wharves at galveston city not knowing whom it belonged to and took it down the channel with the intention to desert to the enemy blockading the harbor of galveston until arriving at the obstructions in the channel the boat was capsized and lost all this at or near the city of galveston on the night from the ninth to the tenth of december eighteen sixty four to all of which the accused pleaded not guilty finding and sentence of the court the court having maturely considered all the evidence adduced find the accused of specification first charge guilty of first charge guilty of specification second charge guilty of second charge guilty and the court do therefore sentence the said antoine richers de j battery to be shot to death with musketry at such time and place as the major general commanding may direct two the proceedings finding and sentence of the court in the foregoing case are hereby approved and confirmed and the sentence will be carried into effect in the presence of such part of the troops on galveston island as brigadier-general haas shall direct on friday the third day of march next three the sentence of the general court-martial in the case of lieutenant max meissner company d timmins regiment of texas infantry is remitted except that portion reducing him to the ranks as a private private meissner will be released from arrest and conscripted in such company of his regiment as his commanding officer shall designate by command of major general j g walker w a smith a a general end of general orders number no. six by the confederate states of america army district of texas new mexico and arizona how six men traveled through the wide world from the yellow fairy book edited by andrew lang this is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of librivox all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org there was once upon a time a man who understood all sorts of arts he served in the war and bore himself bravely and well 
but when the war was over he got his discharge and set out on his travels with three farthings of his pay in his pocket wait he said that does not please me only let me find the right people and the king shall yet give me all the treasures of his kingdom he strode angrily into the forest and there he saw a man standing who had uprooted six trees as if they were straws he said to him will you be my servant and travel with me yes he answered but first of all i will take this little bundle of sticks home to my mother and he took one of the trees and wound it round the other five raised the bundle on his shoulders and bore it off then he came back and went with his master who said we two ought to be able to travel through the wide world and when they had gone a little way they came upon a hunter who was on his knees his gun on his shoulder aiming at something the master said to him hunter what are you aiming at he answered two miles from this place sits a fly on the branch of an oak i want to shoot out its left eye oh go with me said the man if we three are together we shall easily travel through the wide world the hunter agreed and went with him and they came to seven windmills whose sails were going round quite fast and yet there was not a breath of wind nor was a leaf moving the man said i don't know what is turning those windmills there is not the slightest breeze blowing so he walked on with his servants and when they had gone two miles they saw a man sitting on a tree holding one of his nostrils and blowing out of the other fellow what are you puffing at up there asked the man he replied two miles from this place are standing seven windmills see i am blowing to drive them round oh go with me said the man if we four are together we shall easily travel through the wide world so the blower got down and went with him and after a time they saw a man who was standing on one leg and had unstrapped the other and laid it near him then said the master you have made yourself very comfortable to rest i am a runner answered he and so that i shall not go too quickly i have unstrapped one leg when i run with two legs i go faster than a bird flies oh go with me if we five are together we shall easily travel through the wide world so he went with him and not long afterwards they met a man who wore a little hat but he had it slouched over one ear manners manners said the master to him don't hang your hat over one ear you look like a madman i dare not said the other for if i were to put my hat on straight there would come such a frost that the very birds in the sky would freeze and fall dead on the earth oh go with me said the master if we six are together we shall easily travel through the wide world now the six came to a town in which the king had proclaimed that whoever should run with his daughter in a race and win should become her husband but if he lost he must lose his head this was reported to the man who declared he would compete but he said i shall let my servant run for me the king replied then both your heads must be staked and your head and his must be guaranteed for the winner when this was agreed upon and settled the man strapped on the runner's other leg saying to him now be nimble and see that we win 
it was arranged that whoever should first bring water out of a stream a long way off should be the victor then the runner got a pitcher and the king's daughter another and they began to run at the same time but in a moment when the king's daughter was only just a little way off no spectator could see the runner and it seemed as if the wind had whistled past in a short time he reached the stream filled his pitcher with water and turned round again but halfway home a great drowsiness came over him he put down his pitcher lay down and fell asleep he had however put a horse's skull which was lying on the ground for his pillow so that he should not be too comfortable and might soon wake up in the meantime the king's daughter who could also run well as well as an ordinary man could reached the stream and hastened back with her pitcher full of water when she saw the runner lying there asleep she was delighted and said my enemy is given into my hands she emptied his pitcher and ran on everything now would have been lost if by good luck the hunter had not been standing on the castle tower and had seen everything with his sharp eyes ah said he the king's daughter shall not overreach us and loading his gun he shot so cleverly that he shot away the horse's skull from under the runner's head without its hurting him then the runner awoke jumped up and saw that his pitcher was empty and the king's daughter far ahead but he did not lose courage and ran back to the stream with his pitcher filled it once more with water and was home ten minutes before the king's daughter arrived look said he i have only just exercised my legs that was nothing of a run but the king was angry and his daughter even more so that she should be carried away by a common discharged soldier they consulted together how they could destroy both him and his companions then said the king to her i have found a way don't be frightened they shall not come home again he said to them you must now make merry together and eat and drink and he led them into a room which had a floor of iron the doors were also of iron and the windows were barred with iron in the room was a table spread with delicious food the king said to them go in and enjoy yourselves and as soon as they were inside he had the doors shut and bolted then he made the cook come and ordered him to keep up a large fire under the room until the iron was red hot the cook did so and the six sitting round the table felt it grow very warm and they thought this was because of their good fare but soon the heat became still greater and they wanted to go out but found the doors and windows fastened then they knew that the king meant them harm and was trying to suffocate them but he shall not succeed cried he of the little hat i will make a frost come which shall make the fire ashamed and die out so he put his hat on straight and at once there came such a frost that all the heat disappeared and the food on the dishes began to freeze when a couple of hours had passed and the king thought they must be quite dead from the heat he had the doors opened and went in himself to see but when the doors were opened there stood all six alive and well saying they were glad they could come out to warm themselves for the great cold in the room had frozen all the food hard in the dishes then the king went angrily to the cook and scolded him and asked him why he had not done what he was told but the cook answered there is heat enough there see for yourself 
Then the king saw a huge fire burning under the iron room, and understood that he could do no harm to the six in this way. The king now began again to think how he could free himself from his unwelcome guests. He commanded the master to come before him, and said, If you will take gold and give up your right to my daughter, you shall have as much as you like. Oh, yes, your majesty, answered he, give me as much as my servant can carry, and I will give up your daughter. The king was delighted, and the man said, I will come and fetch it in fourteen days. Then he called all the tailors in the kingdom together, and made them sit down for fourteen days, sewing at a sack. When it was finished, he made the strong man who had uprooted the trees take the sack on his shoulder, and go with him to the king. Then the king said, What a powerful fellow that is, carrying that bale of linen as large as a house on his shoulder! And he was much frightened, and thought, What a lot of gold he will make away with! Then he had a ton of gold brought, which sixteen of the strongest men had to carry. But the strong man seized it with one hand, put it in the sack, saying, Why don't you bring me more? That scarcely covers the bottom. Then the king had to send again and again to fetch his treasures, which the strong man shoved into the sack, and the sack was only half full. Bring more, he cried. These crumbs don't fill it. So seven thousand wagons of the gold of the whole kingdom were driven up. These the strong man shoved into the sack, oxen and all. I will no longer be particular, he said, and will take what comes, so that the sack shall be full. When everything was put in, and there was not yet enough, he said, I will make an end of this. It is easy to fasten a sack when it is not full. Then he threw it on his back, and went with his companions. Now when the king saw how a single man was carrying away the wealth of the whole country, he was very angry, and made his cavalry mount and pursue the six, and bring back the strong man with the sack. Two regiments soon overtook them, and called to them, You are prisoners, lay down the sack of gold, or you shall be cut down. What do you say? said the blower. Are we prisoners? Before that you shall dance in the air and he held one nostril and blew with the other at the two regiments. They were separated and blown away in the blue sky over the mountains, one this way and the other that. A sergeant-major cried for mercy, saying he had nine wounds, and was a brave fellow, and did not deserve this disgrace. So the blower let him off, and he came down without hurt. Then he said to him, now go home to the king, and say that if he sends any more cavalry, I will blow them all into the air. When the king received the message, he said, Let the fellows go, they are bewitched. Then the six brought the treasure home, shared it among themselves, and lived contentedly till the end of their days. End of How Six Men Traveled Through the Wide World From the Yellow Fairy Book, edited by Andrew Lang Entry for June 6, 1857, from the Journal of Henry David Thoreau. This is recorded to celebrate the sixth anniversary of LibriVox. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 
Recording by Sue Anderson. June sixth, eighteen fifty seven, eight a.m. To Lee's Cliff by River. This is June, the month of grass and leaves. Already the aspens are trembling again, and a new summer is offered me. I feel a little fluttered in my thoughts, as if I might be too late. Each season is but an infinitesimal point. It no sooner comes than it is gone. It has no duration. It simply gives a tone and hue to my thought. Each annual phenomenon is a reminiscence and prompting. Our thoughts and sentiments answer to the revolutions of the seasons as two cogwheels fit into each other. We are conversant with only one point of contact at a time, from which we receive a prompting and impulse, and instantly pass to a new season or point of contact. A year is made up of a certain series and number of sensations and thoughts which have their language in nature. Now I am ice. Now I am sorrow. Each experience reduces itself to a mood of the mind. I see a man grafting, for instance. What this imparts chiefly is not apples to the owner or bread to the grafter, but a certain mood or train of thought to my mind. That is what the grafting is to me. Whether it is anything at all, even apples or bread to anybody else, I cannot swear, for it would be worse than swearing through glass. I only see those other facts as through a glass darkly. End of entry for June 6th, 1857, from the Journal of Henry David Thoreau.